Good morning, everybody. I'm going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through 18, and 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1 through 11. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do have hope, or who, I apologize, as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is no peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all the children of the light, the children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. We have some props today. I'm pulling out all the stops for Easter. Something special for you guys. Um, my name is Harrison. I'm the associate pastor here at Hope Chapel. Um, it's great to be worshiping with you guys on this day. Um, as I mentioned in my call to worship, uh, middle school Harrison is a character who comes up sometimes in my sermons. Middle school is usually when I had my best realizations uh, in most areas of my life. Um, middle school Harrison was very afraid of death, um, didn't know what was past it on the other side of the curtain. And my biggest problem in life was to felt like to solve how I could stop from, from dying. And so in that way, I fearfully lived under death's tyranny. Uh, one thing that I really needed, um, and adult Harrison still needs, was for Jesus to actually peel back that curtain for me and to show me in light of his resurrection what was going to be on the other side of my death um, so I could stop living under that tyranny on a regular basis. Uh, I needed to learn how to stop living like I was dying and to start living like I was resurrecting. The Thessalonians in our passage today really needed that 
same glimpse behind the curtain. A lot of people in their congregation had died, uh, many due to persecution. And they were worried uh, that they knew that Jesus could come back at some point in their lifetimes. They were worried the people that had died would miss out somehow on that event. Um, so they needed the curtain pulled back. And that's exactly what Paul gives them in our passage. You have the first paragraph is a glimpse of what to expect on the other side. And then one paragraph is how best to prepare for that in this life. Now, if you're a parent, uh, you know that we spend a lot of time preparing for our births, uh, going to birthing classes, reading books, decorating a nursery, buying gear, packing a birth bag. Um, but we don't spend a lot of time preparing for our death and resurrection. And so the title of my sermon today is What to Expect When You're Resurrecting, um, instead of What to Expect When You're Expecting. Um, Again, we're pulling out all the stops for Easter today, guys. Uh, it's going to be good. All right. Um, so just two points. Uh, first one's what to expect. Second is how to prepare. Um, and before we dive in, let's, let's pray. Father, uh, we come to you excited on this day of celebration um, to, to look beyond um, our deaths and to see what you have prepared for us there, Lord. Um, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that. Um, you teach us from your word those things that are true, um, and Lord, would you help us too, to, to really think seriously today of how to live our lives in preparation for such a thing. Um, Lord, we, you know, we know that you desire that of us, that we would be as best prepared as we can be, and so would you help us this morning, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, uh, what to expect. Uh, you can look at your passage in your uh, worship guide here in uh, chapter 4, verse 13 of uh, 1 Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Uh, when he says those who are asleep is a common way of referring to people who had died in their time, um, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Um, so the Greeks at this time generally considered death an endless sleep uh, with no hope of waking up from it. Um, Greek poet Theocritus said, hopes are for the living, but the dead are without hope. Uh, this is a kind of thinking led to a certain kind of grieving. It was a bitter, hopeless grieving. Um, Paul is helping the Thessalonians realize that as Christians, they were to grieve uh, their dead differently because of their new understanding of what was behind the curtain. And so what's, what's back there, verse, verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring, him, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Paul is saying at some point, Resurrection is behind the curtain. By our connection to Jesus, those who are asleep or dead will be brought with Jesus, meaning resurrected. Um, and Paul goes on to talk about how this uh, resurrection takes place at Jesus' second coming. But he's actually skipping a step here and pulling back the curtain. He, he says, if you were to die today in, in other places, um, you should expect something else first. And, and this is where I'd like to act as your tour guide this morning, um, kind of like in the Divine Comedy if anyone's uh, read that, Virgil leads Dante through the realms of the dead. Um, I would like to give you a biblical tour of the major experiences that you would have if, after you pass through the curtain. Um, and I'm going to try and do it in the order you would experience them according to the Bible. So the first stop on our tour, uh, if you died right now, before Jesus' return, you would enter what theologians call the intermediate state. The intermediate state is your spirit being unnaturally separated from your body until the resurrection. It's what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, I would rather uh, be away from the body but at home with the Lord. Um, there's a, a place where he's without his body but he's at home with the Lord. Ecclesiastes says 
The bodies go to the dust, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. This state, intermediate state, is not your forever home, according to the Bible. The intermediate state is actually a result of the fall. You were never meant for your body to die or to be apart from your body. You are most truly a body and spirit union. In biblical terms, they wouldn't say you have a body. They would say you are a body. But the intermediate state is necessary until Jesus comes back as a holding place for you. And so if you're in Jesus, if you're connected to Jesus when you die, the intermediate state is great. uh, Because you get to be with Jesus in heaven. Remember, he told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, But if you're not united to Jesus, the intermediate state is very bad, according to Jesus. Those who are apart from him are in torment and darkness as they await the judgment on the last day. So the first thing to expect behind the curtain is the intermediate state, your soul without a body. Now our second step on the tour, getting back to the, the passage here, is verse 16, the return of Jesus and your resurrection. So look at, look at verse 16. For the, for the Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven, his second coming, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. So at this stop in our tour, you may notice shouting and instruments. Why? Uh, the answer is resurrection. Cry of command is a military term, which means commanding troops to gather. Uh, so there's some, some people are being summoned. And then there's the image of trumpets was used in Jewish synagogues to envision God calling his exiles back from Assyria and Egypt. So someone's being called back home. Who are these people summoned and called home? The rest of the verse tells us, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So this command, this trumpet, this archangel are summoning the dead. God's voice in Genesis, we saw, has the power to create you. And now it has the power to raise your dead body. Jesus told us, the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. We actually saw Jesus summon two dead people in his life. Remember when Jesus cried in a loud voice to a four-day-old, smelly, dead man in a tomb, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus himself walks out. And so our second stop is Jesus descending, you hearing Jesus' voice, and it's your resurrection. But you might be wondering, what's my body going to be like? Biblically, it's actually the same body you have now, but with different qualities. Paul says it is sown or died, it died in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. It died in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It died in weakness, it's raised in power. It died a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. This means your new body will be glorious, powerful, incorruptible, which means that it's unable to deteriorate or die, and unable to sin. That's what it means to have a spiritual body. It means it's fully animated by the Spirit of God. It's pretty good. And also, it's not just those in union with Jesus who will experience a resurrection of sorts. It's actually everyone. Jesus says the hour is coming in which uh, uh, all of those in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. Biblically, it's known as the resurrection of the just and unjust, which means everybody. And there are some, uh, you're also thinking, when Jesus comes back, who haven't died, they're still alive. What about those people? That's what Paul talks about here in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, when Jesus returns, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, so clouds in the Bible always accompany God when his glory is revealed. Mount Sinai and Exodus, clouds, the temple in 1 Kings, clouds, various prophets' visions into heaven. 
Um, this is not Jesus' mode of transportation, uh, getting to the earth, but it's part of the revelation of God's presence and his glory. And so those who are alive and in Jesus are caught up together in God's glory and presence with those who are resurrected. Um, and then they meet the Lord in the air. And this word meet in Greek refers to when someone big was coming to town, you would go out uh, to meet them and then you would escort them into town. So uh, they're going out to meet Jesus to escort him on the last leg of his journey to earth. Um, and so the people who never died um, are part of that. But also they do immediately get these better bodies. Uh, Paul says it happens in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, these people's bodies are changed into the powerful, glorious, unkillable, without sin bodies. And so he says we will always be with the Lord. So to summarize our tour behind the curtain so far, first stop, intermediate state. Second, Christ's return, resurrection of all. And now the third stop, which is a really sobering stop, is the judgment of all by Jesus. Second Corinthians 5 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to all that he has done, whether it be good or bad. Again in Romans 14 he says, We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and every one of us give account of himself to God. Lastly, Jesus himself says, Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account of in the day of judgment. So at this stop, all secrets are revealed. All your words, your actions, your choices in this life, you will need to answer for to Jesus. It's a very sobering stop on the journey. And you'll also see, according to the Bible, that your works from your life are tested uh, they are set on fire to reveal what is truly there. Was it precious gold and silver? Or was it worthless wood, hay, and straw? Only what survives the testing fire of God will you be rewarded for. And so you'll see at this stop, many people actually do survive this judgment. They're justified by this judge, but only through Jesus' life and death being accredited to them. That's what the cross was all about on Good Friday. It was an exchange. Jesus taking our condemnation on himself and giving us his righteousness instead. And we tap into that exchange only through trusting in Jesus to save us. So the people who survived this judgment are people that you would have noticed left all other hopes of salvation behind in their life, united themselves to Jesus, and persevered with Jesus till the end. And that, but they still survived that judgment only by the grace of God. But also, let me be clear, at this stop in the tour, even true Christians... Uh, who, who pass the judgment based on Jesus' exchange, will still give an account of everything you thought, did, and said, will still have your secrets exposed, and your works still get the fire treatment. Paul has actually wrote all those passages to Christians, saying, hey, let me remind you, this is all happening. Um, meaning the cross doesn't exempt you from this judgment experience. It's actually the judgment of your life and works that should confirm the genuineness of your faith. But Jesus warns us that there's going to be a lot of surprises. People who thought they were in, that won't be in. Their faith won't be confirmed. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. The idea of judgment, this idea, might raise a lot of questions for you. It does for me. Um, there's some mystery around it, and we need to have a whole sermon on this alone. In the meantime, if it is raising questions, I'd love to talk to you about those. Uh, folks uh, at our church would love to talk to you. There's folks also praying for people in, in the lobby during communion that can pray for anything that's on your heart. Um, but for the sake of our sermon now, we, all we need to know is this is a stop on our tour for all of us. So to reiter reiterate where we've been, intermediate state, 
the return of Jesus and resurrection of all, and then third, judgment of all, and now our last stop is heaven and hell. No one talks about heaven and hell more than Jesus. Jesus is how we actually know about those two places. He says in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he's talking about what we just, our previous stop, the judgment. Um, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of this world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will inherit eternal life. Jesus describes heaven as a banquet, a wedding feast, a mansion with many prepared rooms, He describes hell often as eternal fire, a place of outer darkness and punishment with much weeping and gnashing of teeth. And all of us will be in our bodies in one of these two places for eternity. And that concludes our tour. That's what to expect when you're resurrecting, according to the Bible. The intermediate state, Jesus' return, resurrection of all, judgment of all, eternal heaven or eternal hell. Now, you might be thinking, that tour sounds like a load of hogwash. We die, Harrison, and that's it. Anything after is just people being afraid of death, doing some wishful thinking. This is actually what I thought when I was that middle schooler, uh, when I was, people were Christians around me. One thing that changed my mind along the way was actually hearing what I just shared with you. <laughs> Does that tour I gave you sound like wishful thinking? Does having all your secrets exposed publicly, giving an account of all your thoughts, words, and deeds to a perfect person to be judged sound nice? What about having most of your hard work burned to ashes? What about facing the possibility of entering eternal suffering even when you think you're not going to? If I was going to make up something nice and easy, it wouldn't be that tour. And I actually wonder which one sounds more like wishful thinking, the tour I just gave you, or this tour... Here's what's behind the curtain. It's eternal sleep. There's no judgment. You can do whatever you want your whole life and never answer to anyone. Which one sounds more wishful to most people today? Okay, Harrison, it may not be wishful thinking, but I also just don't think it's true. We have no evidence of any of this. And I'm wondering if you're thinking this, have you actually looked into the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus? Have you really tried like an investigator to figure out if this man actually came back to life? If you do, I think you're going to find a lot of interesting things. For instance, 11 of his closest friends were tortured and killed, refusing to deny this. What kind of person dies for a lie? 500 people claimed to have experienced this risen man and went around telling everyone about it despite intense persecution. And a large early church was miraculously born out of this moment. We have thousands and thousands of reliable early manuscripts of these people's writings. And they've become, for pretty much all of written history, the most sold book in the world. And today, 2.2 billion people would say they've looked into it, they believe the historicity of these testimonies, and they even personally know this resurrected man. And so if you decide to look into it, I think what you actually find is there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than for any other historical event you would say you know happened.
The reason for doubting it for most people is not a lack of evidence, but rather it's an unfounded presupposition that death must always reign. There can't be life after. I won't believe it. The Easter holiday exists because one day, 2,000 years ago, it did not rain for one man. And I hope you look into that if you haven't yet. And if you want to look into it, as I said before, I'd be happy to talk with you, to point you to resources to do that that were helpful for me. Michael, our elders, our staff would love to walk with you on that journey. But even assuming, which is understandable that you have some doubts about this, just go with me for a minute. If the tour I gave you is true, what sort of life ought you to live? How do you prepare for something like that? We pack a a birth go bag when the baby's coming. Um, So what should we pack in our resurrection go bag? Um, First things I'll mention are granola bars, flint, paracord. Um, No, just kidding. Uh, First thing I'll mention is uh, before packing, we have to empty our bag first. Um, A lot of us may have packed accidentally for a different trip, and so we've got to take some stuff out of it to be able to fit the right stuff in. So the first thing that you might have packed for a different trip that's worthless would be money. Uh, Jesus told a parable of a man uh, who grew a lot of crops, got rich, and said, what will I do with all this? I know. I'll build big storehouses for it. Then I'll sit and enjoy my life. He builds them, and then right after he builds them, Jesus says, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. Whose will all this be now? In other words, Jesus says there's no exchange rate for your money into heavenly currency doesn't transfer. That man wasted his time stuffing his bag with what beyond the curtain is monopoly money and is therefore a fool. Not only was it worthless, but Jesus even says it has negative value for your judgment. He says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. That means if you spend your time filling your bag with with money, um, you won't have any room to fit anything of value in there, and so you won't be prepared. Um, How are you going to give account to Jesus for all that time and energy you spent pursuing money? And what kind of person did you become doing that? Jesus actually gives us a tip. He says, if you want to get past the judgment, spend your money on something that's actually going to help you behind the curtain. Meaning, give it away to someone who actually needs it, freely and generously, and I can actually reward you in heaven for that. So the first thing you don't bring is money. Second is pleasure. This is my favorite pleasure. It's uh, gummy bears. We're not sponsored by these people, but they're just gummy bears. Uh, (laughs) Filling your life with as much pleasure as you can get. Uh, Carpe diem, seize the day. You only live once. Live it up for you. Not saying don't gummy, you can eat gummy bears, but you know, other kinds of pleasure. Um, Many people around you pack their bag as full as possible of this. Why do they do that? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. These people are packing their bags for a different trip. They assume their next 30 to 40 years are all they got and death is the end. But if you want to pack your bag for resurrection and judgment, you cannot fill your bag with this stuff. For the same reasons as money. It doesn't transfer. It's hard to account for in the day of judgment. And what kind of person do you become pursuing this? It's wasted space and of negative value. Third is obsession over... Our physical lives. This is my daughter's stethoscope. Um, obsession over our physical lives with no regard for our spiritual life. 
This symbolizes a foolish fear of death for ourselves, living a life solely around trying to preserve our earthly lives, and are being devastated at the smallest signs of physical deterioration. My hair is falling out. The end is coming. While all the while being totally unconcerned with our spiritual deterioration, our sinful secrets, our distance from Jesus, our absent prayer life, our lack of charity for those around us. This lack of concern for any of these things that are going to matter in the judgment is foolish. This lifestyle is another version of packing our bags for death being the end. So I've got to hold on to this life as much as I can. In the tour I gave, Jesus brought your body back with one word. And when he did, your body was glorious, powerful, unable to deteriorate and die. So that means, yes, you should still care for your body now, but you don't need to be afraid of it breaking down. It's nothing Jesus can't fix with a single word. So you pack your bag not full of this, but stuff for the judgment instead. Other things I'll mention, fame. It's my daughter's sunglasses. She's got everything I needed for this. Uh, the world is not going to judge us. Jesus is. So you don't need that. Second, pursuit of worldly success. It's a trophy. World's best RUF intern, Harrison Holbrook. Um, uh, pursuit of worldly success. If you pursue this for your own selfish ends, even straight A's in school, that work is going to be burned to a crisp. Don't waste your time pursuing that. Last one. This one's for me. This is a, a past sermon. Um, hey, Jesus, look at all these alliterating points I got in here. Uh, look at this creative illustration, this little flourish right here. Jesus would say, if I did that sermon for my own glory to entertain a crowd, then he's burning it all. Can't fill my bag with that. So I wonder, before we move to filling our bags, what uh, might you need to clear out of your bags this morning? Consider that for a minute. All right, so now that we have cleaned out our bags, we can begin packing for our resurrection. What should we put in this thing? Uh, look with me in chapter 5, verse 1 here in our passage. Now concerning the times and seasons, meaning when will Jesus come back, uh, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. They have already been taught about this. Uh, what, what, what does Paul mean? What, what were they taught? Verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Jesus often reiterated he would come back with the same surprise as a nighttime thief. The image Jesus uses, and Paul's reiterating here, is that someone who's supposed to be guarding a house in the watches of the night, and a thief is coming, it could come at any time. If this, ha- if this guard falls asleep or he gets drunk, uh, he's going to be caught off guard when the thief comes. This is the suddenness of the second coming of Jesus. It's also similar to how the Bible talks about your own death. Jesus says, this very night your soul is required of you. You're a vapor, here for one second, gone the next. This means in verse 3, uh, while people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So here's another image, pretty close to home for a lot of women in here recently. Um, you're going back about your life, 39 weeks pregnant, going to church, driving the kids to daycare, Boom. The husband gets a call, everything for the day is canceled, you're getting in your, your go bag, you're headed to the hospital, hoping the baby doesn't come in the car. It comes upon you quick, especially that second or third child. 
So he's coming like a thief in the night, like labor pains. So how do we prepare for something like that? What can we pack in our go bags? Verse 4. But you were not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You were all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So the first thing we need is coffee. Uh, you need to stay awake, be ready, be on your guard, and you need to be sober. So water for hydration. Um, not something intoxicating. To have your wits about you. The image now is not of a sleeping guard uh, or a drunk guard, but a guard who's faithfully at his post, constantly searching the horizon, super alert. And this guard brings the, life, the light with him. Uh, so the whole compound's lit up, and the thief is not going to be able to surprise this guy. The guard lives such a life that at any moment, he's ready. And I can't stress enough how often Jesus talks about this theme of suddenness and preparation. He tells so many parables about it. A master who sets his servant over his house while he's at a wedding feast. And he says he's going to return at a time the servant doesn't know. And uh, the servant will need to open the door for him. So he says, be awake, be ready to open the door. Another one, similar of a master who sets a person over his servants this time to feed them at the proper times when he's gone. And the master's going to come back at a time that you don't expect to see how you're treating his servants. Do you want to be mistreating the servants when he gets back? Or do you want to be feeding the servants when he gets back? He tells of virgins with oil lamps waiting to meet a bridegroom. Some brought extra oil for their lamps. Others didn't. The bridegroom is delayed. They all fall asleep. And then he surprises them. And there's not enough oil. So the ones who didn't bring the more oil miss out and don't get into the wedding. Be awake. Be prepared. He summarizes it all in Revelation 16. He says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed, happy is the one who stays awake. So if this theme is so important to Jesus, what does it mean practically for us to be awake, to be sober, to be on our guard? I want to suggest that to be awake is to be constantly setting our minds on and pursuing the things of Christ with a single-minded devotion. It's to constantly set our minds on and pursuing the things of Christ with single-minded devotion. Meaning if he came back, he wouldn't catch you at any moment pursuing something else. I have one example of a man from church history uh, who does this very well. He's not famous, but his son is famous. Uh, John Patton was a famous Scottish missionary um, and to some islands off the coast of Australia. And I want to tell you about his no-name father, who was a great example of an alert, awake, faithful guard. So there's no Bible-believing churches near John Patton's house growing up. So a Scottish father would walk his family four miles each Sunday to reach a church that taught biblical doctrine. In 40 years, John Patton said his father only missed church three times. Once for a snowstorm, once for an ice storm, and once for an outbreak of cholera. And then during the week, every morning and evening, no matter what the day held, his father would lead them in family worship. It was the most important part of their day. During that time, John said, and I quote, How much my father's prayers impressed me, I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand. When on his knees, and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for every personal and domestic need, for conversion of the non-Christian world in service of Jesus. We all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love Jesus as our divine friend. And then after uh, every meal, three times a day, his father would retire and pray alone in his closet. And John said he would again hear his father loudly pouring out his whole soul with tears to God. John Patton's father was not a rich man, 
He's not a famous man. He was not a successful man. But he was a single-minded guard and steward of Jesus' household. He was always on shift, always awake, always sober, never left his post. Many of us today, I think, might have dismissed him as too radical, maybe legalistic, weird. Get a hobby. Have a few drinks, man. Go watch some sports. Take a break. And yet, beyond the curtain of death, our passage leads us to believe this man will be honored far above any famous Christian you know as someone who is single-mindedly set on the things of Jesus. And when he stands before Jesus to give an account of his life, his bag is appropriately packed for that moment, isn't it? So we must be awake and sober. Let me give you two last things to put in your bag from our passage. Uh, Verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. So the first thing... It's from uh, a very real breastplate here. Um, uh, a breastplate to protect your vital organs made of faith and love. What does that mean? Remember, the only thing that can save you from condemnation is being united to Jesus through faith. And trusting in Jesus alone for your sal- it's trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation that protects you from the arrows of condemnation that Satan would shoot at you. You're protected by faith alone, but notice, not a faith that is alone. It's a breastplate of faith and love. The Bible is clear that true faith will show itself by your works of love. Uh, It's a living faith, a faith that shows itself by love, a faith that loves God with a whole heart by keeping his commandments and loves others to the same degree that we love ourselves. And so these two things, faith and love, comprise your breastplate, and they lead to also your helmet for the hope of salvation. Okay? The helmet uh, uh, is uh, something that protects your head. Um, It's your hope of being with Jesus in heaven based on his promises that he made to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has passed from death to life. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This is the helmet of the hope of salvation. These items, the breastplate and helmet, biblically are referred to as the armor of God, meaning it's God's armor that he gives to you. Isaiah had a vision of one day God putting on his armor, a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation, and coming down to save his people. But on the cross... We saw an armorless Jesus with his breastplate and helmet off. We saw his bare back scourged to the bone. We saw his bare side pierced through with a spear. We saw his helmetless head bleeding all over from a crown of thorns on it. And we saw Jesus killed without his armor. Why would he take it off? The answer we found out is that he was trading clothes with you. You who had no armor to speak of. You who had no hope of surviving the judgment. He took his armor off to give to you. And then succumbed to death. But on Easter we realize he didn't need this. The author of life was worthy alone to cast off the chains of death and walk free. And now today he holds out these to you. And says, will you put these on for your resurrection? Will you wake up and begin getting ready? Will you get back on guard 
And will you prepare for his return, for your resurrection, your judgment, for heaven and hell? If you wear his armor daily, soberly, in this life, you will be ready for that moment. Because in verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So let's live for Jesus on this Easter day. Amen.
So in Joseph Smith's King Follett sermon, Joseph said that he would refute any idea that there is one God in all eternity and that people could become gods themselves. He just flat out says that. And that each one of us has the capability of becoming a god of our own planet. These are not things that are set up front by the Mormon church. So you talk about that GPS direction where you punch in, you might have similar terms, and it looks like we're going to end up at the same place. Similar terms, ending up at two different places. Jesus is also the offspring of God, of our, the God of our planet, and of one of his goddess wives. Satan and Jesus are brothers. So Jesus and Satan were both created beings. Well, how are you saved in Mormonism? Well, you're saved uh, by faith and works. Both of those things put together. That's how you get salvation. So in the Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi, uh, it says, For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all that we can do. It's that little clause on the end there. Which is a twisting of Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our justification with God is by faith alone, by grace alone, right? Now, works, because I was just texting with a Mormon friend the other day, a lot of times they bring up James, you know, faith without works is dead. They'll, they'll, they'll go there a lot. And, uh, you know, in the end, you have to be able to hold the tensions that the Lord puts in his word. The reason why faith without works is dead is because there should be some fruit of the faith that you have on the inside of you. So if you don't have any Jesus-like things coming out of you, well, then that shows that the faith on the inside is dead, that you don't even have it. You're still dead in your trespasses and sins, maybe. So to, to claim that as, oh, you need faith plus works, well, then that totally negates all the passages that talk about faith alone is what justifies you before God. So do you see that they'll take, uh, this is what false teachers and false prophets do, they may even take an aspect of truth and overemphasize that and raise that really high, but that's to the detriment of the other things that God is teaching, to where we need to be able to hold these things in tension together. And those two things put together is the straight path that God is making. Overemphasizing one makes the path crooked. Okay, lastly, this one may hit home a little bit more for some of us. Um, as parents or grandparents, we need to be very careful about the kind of gospel, about what it means to be a Christian that we display to our children and grandchildren, okay? One thing that can be very easy for us as parents to do is that we can uh, try to raise our kids and emphasize things with our kids that is so behavior-driven, so much according to Christians do these things and don't do these things. And we're totally trying to manage them according to their behavior. Anybody ever fall into this as a parent? 
You're trying to control them according to their behavior. And so the, the thing that we communicate to them, even maybe by how we talk about the Lord or talk about what we do as Christians, what we communicate to them is actually a false gospel. Because we're saying, this is what Christianity is like. This is what Christians do. They do these things and don't do these things. When really the whole point of Christianity and what it means to know Jesus is that we can't keep the do's and don'ts. That's why we need him to die for us. So there, there should be a sense of uh, humility that we show to our kids. We should be telling our kids the true gospel. We should be uh, pointing them to issues of what's going on on in the inside of them because it's very important. This is what, what's going on on in the inside of us is most important to the Lord. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what matters is what's going on in here. Now, should we still point our kids in good directions? Should we still discipline them? Should we still tell them about morals and behavior? Yes, we should. But we need to keep pointing them to the gospel. We don't want to become false teachers to our children, which can be a very subtle thing that we do over the course of raising our kids in our home. So may the Lord help us in that. Well, lots of other kinds of false teaching that we can go over. There is no hell. Overemphasizing the grace of God. Universalism. All religions are basically the same. The Bible contains the word of God, but is not entirely the word of God. If you've heard any of those and you don't know what they are, we'd love to talk to you afterwards about them. But like we started with, with the kids singing, Hosanna. On Palm Sunday, people were shouting Hosanna, which is save now, save us, to Jesus. They were shouting to the right person, weren't they? They were shouting the right thing to the right person. But they had different reasons for why they were shouting. One of them was that some of them wanted to be saved from Roman rule. And Jesus' own words of how he taught and led did not match that. So that would have been a false teaching at the time, wouldn't it have? And so on Palm Sunday, today, let's shout Hosanna to the one true Savior and let's desire his saving work for the reasons that he said that we need his saving work. To pay for our sins on the cross so that we would be right with the God who made us when our faith is in him and we love him and follow him, right? So Hosanna, save us now, Lord. Amen.